As we jump into John chapter 20, we're still in John chapter 20, um, moving through this passage. And I will tell you one of the cool things. So last week, um, I felt such a, a connection, such a bond to Mary Magdalene. And, uh, and, and so someone afterwards, um, Chad Larsh came up afterwards and he said, you know what's been cool is moving through this. Is it's kind of like when you, when you read a novel that's really good and you're able to engage with these people as real people. I don't know if any of you have this experience. I do, especially like a three-part or a five-part or even longer, like ten-part novel series or something. That when the book's, when the book's over, you feel like you've lost a good friend or something. Like, like oh, I'm missing my friends. And so um, uh, that's a... Uh, that's a common, uh, a common thing, I think, for us, but so often we don't experience that with Scripture because we read it as a textbook rather than uh, this, this, this stuff inspired by the Holy Spirit about real-life people. And so I hope that as you're coming through this book of John, that when we're wrapping up the book of John, you're going to feel a little sad. You're going to be missing out on like, oh, I want to I hear some more about John, and, and uh, I, hope, I hope Mary's okay, and you know whatever is going on in your mind. And the difference is, of course, these aren't fictional characters. These are real people, and and they come across as real people. You're going to see that again in today's conversation, how they engage like us. <laughs> One of the fun things for me <clears throat> has been rediscovering passages, especially when accidentally something happens like happened this week, which is, you know, we divide up what week is going to be which passages, sometimes way in advance. And then we get there and, and you know, kind of caught off guard by what's in the passage or what's in the passage before. Like months ago, I couldn't have foreseen that there was going to be such a strong connection to Mary. Um, and so then this week, looking at the passage and reading through it and saying like, man, just at first glance, this is going to be nothing like that. <clears throat> it's not going to have that same <clears throat> kick or power or, or that same message. It's just a section out of John. And what's happened time after time is that as I've gotten to dive in and study it, I've learned that this, that's just wrong. That, that it's, it's like you, it feels like you could divide up John absolutely randomly and still there'd be this powerful message written into every little section. It's it's really been shocking, and I'm going to share with you. So this week, there was, there's, I'm going to tell you when we get there, but there's a place where I was really getting excited reading it as, as a new layer of understanding, and I was sitting out here in my office out here in the foyer, and, uh, and as this new understanding is coming, I'm like, this is, this is some amazing stuff, and I was, I was by myself out there. Micah McHugh was wandering through getting stuff done. I'm actually working while I'm sitting there, you know, just looking at the Bible, but the, um, and, and so he comes by one time, and, and I, I've, I've got this place, and I'm like, does it say this? I feel like it says this, and but does it say it? And I'm really wrestling through that, and I just hadn't read the next verse, because in the next verse, it very clearly says exactly what I was trying to get the verse before it to say. And so I was, when I saw it, I was like, oh, it's right here. Micah, Micah, come look at this. And so I, Micah came over, I was like, look at this, look what it does. It happens twice. It's, it's, and it, it just being stunned by a passage that I've read, I don't even know how many times. Um, I don't even know how many times I've read this book, or certainly these passages, and and, and study these things, and yet I've taught it probably half a dozen times. And, and then to find something like this and realize I've missed this every other time, um, it's, just, it's just phenomenal. And so it's so exciting to get to teach through this stuff and learn more about this. So John 20, I'm going to go back and touch on, so Jesus said to her, do not cling to me or do not keep on clinging to me, as we talked about last time, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. So she goes, apparently, Sunday morning, remember, she goes, finds the disciples, tells them what happened. She tells them, Hey, I saw Jesus, and Jesus said to tell you this. 
I'm ascending to, the fa- to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So she does. Now, um, why not our Father? Why not the Father? Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. Now, remember when they asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he starts, our Father. He doesn't begin, my Father and your Father. He says the simple, our Father. Why, why is this? Um, well, here's, here's one thought to this. Jesus is bringing emphasis. He's bringing a point to something, and it seems to be this, and it's going to help us understand the next section, but he seems to be making this point, my Father, who's always been my Father. See, that relationship is in place. It always has been in place. We have God the Father, and eternally we have God the Son. They have both always been the Father and the Son. There wasn't a point at which Jesus became the Son, or which God came the Father. That's always been. He is the Father. This is the Son. We get confused when we try to reverse analogy all of this. I've talked about this before, how we go, but, but how can Jesus be a Son if He didn't become a Son? If He just always was a Son, how does that work? You know, see, you're, you're doing the opposite. You're going, He must be a Son like we're sons. No. There's some sense in which we are sons the way He is a Son. It doesn't reverse. It doesn't go the other way. You can't reverse the analogy. He is the real thing. We are the copy. It's not that we go, oh, He's Father and Son like we're Father and Son. No. We are Father and Son in some way like they are Father and Son. Fatherness and sonness transcends the human race. It predates the human race. It existed before fathers and sons existed, before the earth existed, before universe existed. Whatever it means that he is father and whatever it means that he is son pre-existed. It transcends. It's bigger and grander and better than anything we could re-experience here. And in some way, we are copies of that when we are, for example, fathers and sons. Some way, we're the copy of that. Not the perfect copy, a flawed copy. See, we're flawed. We start being fathers and sons. That's not the real picture. The real picture, you're always fathers and sons. We, don't ha- we can't master that one because we're temporal beings and we've, we have a starting time and so we become. Don't, rever- don't ever reverse that and go like, well, then why doesn't he have a starting point? No, the question should be, why do we, not why doesn't he? Does that make sense? Some of you are like, that's really, that's really helpful. Others are like, what? Okay, so we'll just keep going. Y'all can, y'all can keep wrestling through that. Here's what I want you to see regards this. He is saying... My father is now, in a new way, your father. I'm father, so he's always been my father. Now that I became one of you, he now gets to be your father. That's the idea here. This is, this is presented, we saw this way back, way back in John chapter 1. Um, John predicts for us this statement back in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Really, children. Closer to the original. Better than just being the son of a human father. Better than being the son of human flesh. Better than being the son of human blood. Better than that, now, sons and daughters of God himself. Adopted. Adopt, being adopted to God is much, much better than being born to man. That is the better picture, the more complete picture. So when we study some adoption, in many ways we're studying the more complete concept than when we study biological birth. 
A more accurate picture. It's pretty beautiful on this Sunday. But you can probably already, and probably never really struggled with this idea before of my father and your father, because you get this idea of, okay, it's Jesus' father and he's my father now. I get that. And then no matter, for many people, no matter how bad your example of father is, you have to learn to transfer your concept of God as father away from your biological father, your adopted father, and onto God. And for some people, that's an easy shift. That's our job as dads, is to make that as easy a shift as possible for our children, that they're able to go, oh, my dad is like God. Oh, no, wait, God is only like God. Now it's like God is like my father, and that that's an easy shift. Like, oh, okay, not this, but this. For some of you, for some of us, you have to take a turn like this. So this isn't what it means to be father. That's what it means to be father. And hopefully that's what none of us are creating in our families, that our kids are able to make that transfer relatively easily. Oh, that's what it means to have a parent. Okay, that's what it means to really have a parent. That's the idea. We can get that. I don't know about you, but the passage, this little section that makes me struggle, is Jesus saying, to my God and your God. Now that's strange. So when I read that, I'm like, it seems strange that Jesus Christ, who has declared himself in this book to be Yahweh, to be God, is now referring to God as his God. Not just God like a title, but my God and your God. Here's what's wild. A couple thousand, almost a couple thousand years ago now, one of the early church fathers looked at this passage and here's how he understood it. You ready for this? This is, this is mind-blowing to me. <clears throat> he says this. Jesus was always the Son of God. God was always the Father. And because Jesus came, now God is our Father. God has always been our God. As a human, that means to, have, to be a human means to have a God. Whether you know it, like it, or believe it, there is a God, and He is your God. If you're a Jew, you have a God. He is your God. And because Jesus became one of us, now he has a God. Say it again. He had a father. We were orphans. He came to earth, and now we have a father because he became one of us. Because he became one of us, we who have a God, he now has a God. In some ways, this is the most incarnational passage. This is the most clearest passage about the fact that Jesus was actually experiencing life as a human. We read about Jesus being exhausted. We read about Jesus being tired. We read about Jesus having to learn things. We read about Jesus, um, uh, all these things, Jesus experiencing life as a human being. But maybe it's never hit us before That being human also means Jesus got to experience what it was like to have a God. That's wild. This this would have to be a church father to recognize this early on. How many times have I read through this and never made this connection? I have a father because he came. I have a father because he became like me. And he has a God because he became like me. And he's experienced what it's like to have a God, to learn obedience, the Bible tells us. This, this may or may not hit all of you in the same way, but this was a little bit shocking to me. Anytime I, I realized to what degree Jesus took on human flesh and learned to live as a human, it always stuns me. What we read, to go from the throne of eternal glory to a cradle in the dirt. 
how big this was, how big this leap was, what he was willing to do for us, it beggars the imagination. I would never have seen this on my own. Think about when Jesus does refer to God as God. It only happens a couple of times. For example, when he quotes the psalmist on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The language of a human in an ultimate human moment. The language of David, you quoting David from the cross in the ultimate expression of what it's like to be human, which is to feel forsaken even when you aren't. To feel alone and abandoned even when you aren't. That's a big part of what it means to be human. It's something we all share. We have all experienced that moment with Jesus. Even Jesus Christ, fully God, experiencing what it means to be man, has experienced that moment that each of us have of saying, no matter how many people I'm surrounded by, I am utterly and absolutely alone in my own heart. And Jesus is like, I've been there. This is, this is great stuff. This understanding of Jesus as, as experiencing that is amazing. Now, we keep going. This, on the evening of that day in verse 19, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Okay. It's later the same day, so it's still Sunday. We're going to talk about this. Jesus had a busy Sunday, okay? So we're going to talk about that here in a second. The, the disciples haven't. They've kind of still lived their scattered life. They're all scattered out, and they, but they've, now they've come back together, and they're hiding in a room somewhere in Jerusalem because they're afraid somebody's going to come get them. It is wild to consider. John and Peter have come back to them and said, we don't know what's going on. His tomb, the, the tomb was empty, and the bedclothes were laid out. And a few minutes after them, Mary comes in and goes, um, guys, I just had a conversation with, I mean, you're not going to believe this, but I just had a conversation with Jesus. He told me to tell you this. A few minutes after that, the other women all show up and they go, um, we, we just had a conversation with Jesus and he said, we need to go to Galilee from Jerusalem. We need to go to Galilee. So apparently they plan, okay, well, tomorrow we'll go to Galilee. But before they can leave Jerusalem, Jesus shows up in the room with them. This is not, this, this is what Bob, this is one of the proofs of the resurrection, the proofs of Christianity. This is not the Apostle Peter who's going to stand up in the book of Acts in Jerusalem in front of crowds of people and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. It isn't. This is Peter cowering and hiding. This isn't the John and the Thomas and the others who are going to spread all around the world as far as maybe the British Isles and India and declare within their lifetimes the gospel of Jesus Christ, unafraid or at least filled with courage to go and accomplish this thing. This is a group of men hiding in a room. I, I dare to compare them to us sometimes. Remember how we like to compare to the good guys, but maybe we need to sometimes compare ourselves to the bad guys or at least the good guys before they really get it and wonder where we cower and under what conditions we hide, <clears throat> but not sticking there. It does strike me, just because we're so celebrity-oriented, it's fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't show up to Caiaphas or Annas. He doesn't show up for the Sanhedrin. He doesn't show up to Pilate. He doesn't go to Rome. He doesn't declare himself in front of the Caesar. He comes back to his guys, to the men and women who've been following him all along, and he shows up to them. Now, uh, just so you'll know, let me, let me go through what this looks like, how everybody has seen this. So this is the appearances in the order um, that they actually happen, and we have kind of a little bit of a graphic that shows at least some of them. 
So you have Mary Magla, who meets, he meets him in the garden, and then he meets the other women as they leave the garden. It tells us in Matthew 28 that when they're leaving, he kind of catches up to them. Tells the men, they tell the men to go to Galilee. Apparently, later that afternoon, sometime during the day, Jesus has follows um, a couple of disciples. He walks with them on the road to Emmaus. And one of the more humorous stories in the Bible, if you really catch its full meaning, in that you have two disciples who they're now wandering away from Jerusalem. They, they are so not buying all this, apparently. And we don't know who they are. There's at least two. And we have one by name, but the other one was never named. It may have even been Peter. Um, but they're wandering off, and they're going to Emmaus. Like, eh, well, that whole Jesus thing, that was fun for a few years, but you know what? Not working out so well. He's dead. And so whatever they heard, they didn't buy it, or maybe they, maybe they hadn't heard the news yet. So they're wandering. Oh, actually, they had heard the news. It tells us in the passage they'd heard the news. So they're, they're wandering towards Emmaus, and a guy just shows up and starts walking with them. And he has no idea what's going on. It's this really funny conversation. It's meant to be kind of tongue-in-cheek almost of like, they go, hey, um, he goes, hey, what's going on? They're like, you don't know what's going on? Like the most important stuff ever just happened in Jerusalem. He's like, really? I don't know anything about it. Tell me about it. And so they start telling him about it. So then he then starts teaching them about the history of the Jews and the history of the prophets. It, this is one of those times that you're like, and none of you wrote it down? Seriously? I'd love to have that in my Bible. Jesus is teaching on the entire scripture. Anyway, thanks a bunch, guys. So so here you have, he's walking with them. He starts explaining all this stuff to him. And in the end, he declares what's going on. They're like, hey, would you like to have dinner with us? And they, whoever the stranger is, he sits and have dinner. Now catch, they've walked all day. It's evening. And it, it's evening, and they show up, whoever they are, and they, they're with him. And, he, and then he declares it. Oh, by the way, he lets them know it's Jesus. These two guys are like, well, I guess we'll walk back to Jerusalem then. <laughs> he walks with them the wrong direction all day. Let's them get to the wrong place. I, do you, have any of you ever experienced this with Jesus where he's let you walk a long way down the wrong path? And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, the whole time I'm talking with you, you should be catching this. You realize this is what's going on. You realize it all happens in Jerusalem. You realize that this is the significance. And they're just like, yeah, that's fascinating. Wrong way, wrong way, wrong way. And he declares it. And it tells us that they, like, they had to hurry back to. So it may be them, <clears throat> if it's one of the 11 or one of the 10, they make it back in time. Because the next meeting is this one, the Sunday evening meeting, and Thomas misses it. Maybe that's because Thomas is still coming back from Emmaus, right? We don't know. Um, then the 11, go, they, they go to Galilee. Eight days later, he shows up, and that's the Thomas meeting. We'll talk more about that. Then there's a breakfast meeting with Peter. We'll talk more about that. And then there's a mountain meeting with perhaps hundreds of witnesses. Then at some point, he meets with his half-brother, James. We know that from Paul's writings. We don't know about that. Um, exactly where, but at some point in this process that happens. Then they all head back to Jerusalem, probably for Pentecost. It's appropriate for them to go back. They don't have to, but they're going to go back to, Pente to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. At Bethany, they have one more meeting with Jesus, which is the Great Commission meeting where he ascends straight into the sky. And then finally, Jesus comes and meets with Paul in Acts chapter 9. Those are the, those are the meetings, approximately, that are going on there. In this one, this was the first one outside of with Mary, and what you have is Jesus suddenly standing there. Now, I'm just curious, how do you picture that? They're all in the locked room. They're all scared. They're all hiding. So I, I have the encouragement. I went and looked online to see if anyone did it the way I picture it, and no one does. 
online on YouTube and stuff, everybody has this like, they're, they're all standing around and all of a sudden there's this glowing light in the corner of the room that's like type of glowing thing. And then when the light fades, Jesus is standing there in his glowing white robes. And that's nothing like however, that may be exactly how you've pictured it, in which case, hey, good news, there's stuff you like, you will like on that. So for me, it was like, that's not it at all. So let me explain where I get my image of it. Um, I grew up with a guy, my very best friend, a guy named Jason, lived next door to me, and Jason turned out to be a Navy SEAL. And all of his life, what he wanted to be was a ninja. And so when he discovered there was no such thing, the closest he could become was a Navy SEAL, which is essentially modern-day ninja. And so, um, and so Jason, Jason loved to sneak all the time. He was a hyper-introvert, and his favorite thing in the world to do was to suddenly be where he wasn't supposed to be. And so we actually, I grew up with this all my, like a little bit of that for those of you who are really old like me, a little bit of that Inspector Clouseau, Cato type thing where you just never knew where Jason was going to be. You would walk into a room and there he was. And so it was a, it was an interesting experience for me. Um, I remember at a camp out one night, we were all sitting on the back on the bed of a pickup truck and we're all talking. And in the middle of a sentence, uh, one of my friends, Neil, suddenly just vanishes off the back of the truck. What had happened is Jesus, uh, Jesus, Jason had snuck all the way up, wrong, wrong person to, Jason, in this case, Jason had snuck all the way up to the back of the truck and had grabbed Neil by the shoulders and yanked him off the truck in the middle of a sentence. And none of us saw this coming. Like it was, this was normal. And so it was to be sitting around a campfire and talking and all of a sudden Jason would be in the conversation and everyone would go like, when did you, wait, when did you get here? Like when did Jason show up? Like that, this was normal. That's how I picture this. I picture all of them sitting around and they're discussing the theology of this. Like what is this about, and how do we do this, and, and Jesus did this, and, and what does it mean? Did he really come back, and we've got Mary, and maybe these two guys from Emmaus just showed up, and they're telling us the whole story, and then as someone looks around, and is like, oh, Jesus is right there, suddenly just sitting right there in a circle with them. He's got his own chair, and, and he says, they all turn, they all stun, and like this, like, what? And Jesus goes, peace be with you. Now, that's verse 19, Right? <laughs> That's what's going on here in verse 19. When he says, he's suddenly there, and he says, then peace be with you. And there's nothing special about the phrase, peace be with you. This is the normal greeting. This was the first century Jewish howdy. This is what you said when you're walking through the market. You would say, peace be with you. Oh, and peace be with you. And you would, hey, peace be It's essentially shalom. It's a sl- shalom lachem. It's, it's peace to you. And it probably was even a little bit pronounced a little bit differently in the Aramaic and the Syriac. But that's something like that, shalom. Um, uh, when you see, for today, when you see sometimes Muslim people who will say salam, same, same Semitic word, peace. That's, that's what you're, hey, peace be with you. And so as I'm reading this, it strikes me, and one of the commentaries kind of references this, and I'm really wrestling with this idea, that all of a sudden it strikes me that here Jesus has taken the normal everyday greeting, but now it's not a normal everyday greeting. All of a sudden, Peace be with you isn't just like a, hey, I hope you have peace. Hey, I hope you have some peace. Hey, peace. Now it is him going, seriously, peace be with you. Like for real. Like now we're not, this isn't just a concept. This isn't just words. Now it's the real thing. And I'm sitting there in those chairs wrestling through going, "Could could this be like more significant than this? That Jesus... Is Jesus saying what everybody says? Hey, peace be with you. Or is maybe there's something more to this that Jesus is trying to make clear to them. And of course, they're not getting it. And of course, we don't get it when we read it. Now, what's funny is I'm sitting here wrestling through this. I can't make up my mind, so I read the next verse, which is what I should have done a little earlier. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, 
peace be with you. It's exactly what we were talking about. It's exactly that. Jesus says to them, he's suddenly in their midst, peace be with you. And they're like, Jesus, you're back. Hey, cool, peace be to you too. And he goes, "Mm mm-mm. See this? You see this? Peace be with you. This is all new. You don't just say that now. We just wish things. He makes them so. Hey, peace be with you. No, no, you don't get it. Like literally, actually, as a gift from me. You know that whole broken relationship that you've had with God since the fall? Restored. You know that debt that you owed that you could never, ever, ever have paid that was like white noise in the back of your mind 100% of the time? Yeah, shut that off. It's taken care of. All of that, all those collection agencies that are calling you day after day after day, constantly wanting their money, I paid them. Hey, really, seriously, peace. For the first time since the fall of man, all of creation can have peace. Hey, peace. I took care of it. It's done. That may be why um, Doug Foreman came up between the services and he was like, hey, this, he reminds me of this verse. You don't have this and it's okay. <coughs> Ephesians 2, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken us down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace to reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is Paul expanding this idea. Peace be with you. The real thing. Actual peace. Not just a thought, not just a wish, but for real. <coughs> Fear broken. How do, you get, how do you get the Peter of Acts from the Peter of John 20? You only got a couple of chapters. How are you going to get there? Peace. Peter's going to go from being cowering in a room because he's afraid of the Jews to being afraid of no one. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of torture. Now, he may feel fear, but he doesn't respect the power of anyone except God because God has given him peace. There's something here that when you know it's taken care of, it's done. It may be hard in the meantime. In fact, here's what's wild. The statement he says to them, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. That is not a peaceful thing to say. There's nothing peaceful around the way that God sent the Son. If you mean tranquil, if you mean relaxed, no. Peace, shalom, deeper than this. These are people huddling in fear. Later they will openly confront the very people they're terrified of. Something powerful changes them. He sends them as sheep among wolves, as strangers in a strange land, ambassadors in a dark and twisted country to be hated and despised and tortured and killed and sometimes listened to. These are the apostles. The word means the sent ones. It's the word he uses here, I'm sending you. In the midst of that, Jesus tells them, here's here's what you're going to need. Peace. My peace. I don't give like the world gives peace. See, the world wishes peace. One of the things that stood out to me was this idea of saying, uh, for us, we, we, we wish stuff on people. 
hey, I hope this for you. I hope you have a good day. Um, it's kind of the same thing. Hey, be at peace. The one that jumped out at me immediately was, I, I wish you a Merry Christmas. See, we wish you a Merry Christmas. Jesus became the Merry Christmas. Jesus is why there is such a thing as Christmas. He is, he is Christmas. Like that's, he is, that's what Christmas is, is him. We go, hey, I hope you have a good Christmas. Thanks, man. And Jesus says, I brought you a Merry Christmas. I created for you peace. I am peace. We don't just wish it. Our, our wishes are so impotent compared to his omnipotent declaration in this moment, peace. I was stunned by this. How have I missed it? Verse 22, then he said, and when he said this, he breathed on them. So he just told them, I'm sending you out to die. Then he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Man, this is a tough little passage. I will, I will tell you, you want to watch commentaries fight. There have been splits in the church over just this passage alone. It may be Jesus declaring an authority. What, what people start with is like, well, we know it can't be this. That's how everybody starts the commentaries on this passage. It can't be that Jesus is saying, hey, forgiveness is no longer my problem, now it's yours. It can't be that. Jesus isn't going like, hey, whether or not I think someone should be forgiven, you can forgive them. Or whether or not I think someone shouldn't be forgiven, you can choose to not forgive them and that will stand. It can't be something that, um, that strange. So we're left with is some version of, of discernment, <coughs> maybe supernatural, like, hey, you guys go ahead and forgive people because you won't forgive anybody who I don't want you to forgive. It can be as simple as like, listen, you guys who have been cowering in here, who have been so afraid in here, here's how I want you to change your behavior. In the past, if someone came to you and said, what do I do with this sin? In the past, you would have said, go talk to a rabbi, go talk to the Sanhedrin, go talk to the Jewish leaders. Yeah, don't do that anymore. You tell them. You've been with me for three years. You tell them. You tell them what is forgiven and what is not forgiven. You tell them how to get forgiveness and how, to, how, how forgiveness is avoided. Like You tell them. It could be that simple or that amazingly complex. It could be something that, that was just for these 11 people. It also could be this next, that, that, that it's just Jesus saying, um, hey, I want you to take leadership of my church. This isn't about eternity, but this is about the relationship among believers. You get to say, like, you know what? You can't come back. Or, of course you can come back. I mean, the church is about to face really some hard times. It's hard for us to wrap our brain around. Maybe we'll be able to someday, or our children or our grandchildren will. But you can imagine that there would have been very new converts who then got arrested by the Romans, beaten, who then gave up their home church. Here's all the people who we meet with. And the Romans go and arrest them. And then that person comes back to the church and says, I'm so sorry, what I did was wrong. Will you welcome me back into the church? Imagine that's a hard decision to make when you're church leadership, right? This guy who's had maybe dozens of our families sent to the, the Colosseums to be killed, and now he wants back in. Do we let him back in? Is this just a, another Roman stooge, or is this real? And he's saying, listen, you decide. If you want to let him back in, you, ask, you offer them forgiveness and you let them back in. And if you don't, don't. It may be that. It's, we don't treat church discipline the way we used to very often. There was a time when, it was, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll just read it. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the righteous instead of the, the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Understand what Paul thought the normative situation should be is that if, that if I borrow somebody's uh, lawnmower and then it's broken when I return it, if that person comes to me and says, hey, you broke my lawnmower, and I go, no, it's broken before I got it. And he says, no, no, you need to buy me a new lawnmower. And I'm like, it's not my fault that you broke your lawnmower before I borrowed it. And we can't agree. He doesn't say, you don't go to small claims court in a lost and dark and broken world under a lost judge to declare between two Christians what's right. What you ought to be doing is going to the church leadership, and you go before the leaders and the elders, and you say, here's what's going on. And then whatever they declare, you do it. Now, it's hard for us to imagine because we know in today's world what would happen is somebody would do that and they would come and somebody would go, well, I'm, not, I'm still not paying for it and you can't make me. All you can do is kick me out of the church and there's 94 of those in Tyler that I could go to. I'll just go to one of those instead. And then you have to go where someone can point a gun at you and make you pay. It's unfortunate that we don't do that, that we don't go to church leaders. And I don't mean me. I mean that the, those anointed to be the, the elders and leaders, the leadership board within the church to come before them and say, hey, we've got this conflict going on in our marriage, or hey, we've got this problem going on in our lives, or hey, we want to get a divorce. Will you give us a writ of divorce? Like that idea, that would be an amazing concept to hear from these people and go, hey, here's the judgment we make. Isn't that shocking thought? It was shocking to Paul that, we didn't do, that they didn't do that. As shocking it is to us that we would. Maybe that's what he's saying you need to be looking to one another for judgment, not to the world, looking at, to us that way. Anyway, now the word breathe. Breathe on, he breathes on them. Now, as a good Jewish audience, when you hear the word breathe, what do you think? You're a good Jewish audience now. Where do you go? You immediately think of what passage? Yeah, creation. You think of Genesis, actually technically Genesis 2, then the Lord God formed them, the, the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Two different Hebrew words here, one that means literally breathe, like to puff, to exhale, and the other meaning spirit. So in Genesis 2, what we see is the Lord God forming the man from the dust of the ground and puffing into his nostrils the spirit of life. And the man became a living creature. That doesn't just mean his heart started to beat. It means suddenly he is alive in a new way. Alive in a way that relates him and connects him to God. A new life. A new beginning. This is not subtle. Jesus breathes on his disciples and gives them a new life. There's something new about this. Receive the Holy Spirit. He is sealing them for Acts chapter 2. We're going to see it. We might even have to talk about it. So can't end John. I don't feel like I can end John without jumping Acts 2 before we're done. This idea of going... To be sealed by, he is sealing them for the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to come. He's going to tell them how to do that. This is not subtle. He is breathing new life into them. That's for us to go in new life with new insight. Here's what I want you to come away with today. For some, maybe some of this stuff was really the, these, this idea of God and our, your God and our, my God, and this idea of peace be with you. Maybe that connects with you. Here's what I want you to hear. We just wish things for one another. As good as that is, as we try to create that, and as good as that is as a parent or as a, as a friend or as whatever, when we say peace to you, shalom, that's an awesome gift for us to wish upon one another. 
Jesus is not so impotent. impotent. He is omnipotent. He doesn't just wish things, he makes them. He puts them into existence. When he says to us, peace be to you, he literally means accept the free gift of my peace. No matter what your life circumstances are, accept my peace. No matter what your anxiety levels are, accept my peace. It's done. It is finished. I have purchased it. I've made it right. Live in that. Even in this broken and fallen world, live in my peace. That's the prayer. Be clothed in his peace. May his peace wash over you and heal you and wash your fear away. May the peace of Jesus Christ go with you. Let me pray. Father, lift up your face and look us in the eye and give us your peace. I ask this in your Son's name, who is our peace. Amen.